Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. The Resurrection of Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. That was the title of Dr. Michael Kona's 2010 seminal work. And we have the great Dr. Michael Kona with us. We're going to talk about the resurrection and maybe some alternative theories about it. What do scholars who might not even be Christians say about the evidence? Mike, always great being with you. How are you? Thank you, Dr. Turk. It's wonderful. We are out here at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting in Denver, Colorado. So we're seeing some great people here. Mike's one of them. Mike, um, I saw you recently. You had a... Uh, interaction on Sean McDowell's uh, YouTube show, YouTube channel show with Dale Allison, who's a Princeton mm -hmm. theologian and New Testament scholar as well. How would you characterize Dale's position on the resurrection? What does he think actually happened uh, to Jesus's body? I think he thinks Jesus's body returned to life. Mm -hmm. um, that resurrection, I, I might have, I'm, I might misunderstand Dale into some, but I think he thinks Jesus returned to life, that uh, resurrection is an interpretation of mm -hmm. what happened, mm -hmm. um, but that Jesus rose from the dead and there was probably, perhaps the probably, an empty tomb. And Dale's a great guy. He's, uh, he's one of the most honest scholars I know. He um, seems to be, and he's at Princeton. He is. Yeah, and that interaction that you had with Sean was a fascinating interaction. I just noticed generally you seem to take a little bit firmer stance on many of the issues. Dale seems to want to be a little bit less committed to certain yeah. conclusions. Well, some of that I think has to do with the nature of historical knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, the nature of historical knowledge, what we can actually know about the past. He's a little more pessimistic about it than, than I am. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, even within the field of, of history, um, even more modern history and, and so forth, you have the postmodernists and then you have realists. Mm -hmm. Okay. And postmodernists, and there, you know, there's a spectrum. You've got your hardcore postmodernist, then you have soft, soft uh, postmodernist. And, and basically it's like, okay, you know, your soft to moderate postmodernists would say there are certain things about the past that we can know, mm -hmm. but it's just like bare facts. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you put those things together, you do it within a certain grid that involves interpretation. Um, and those interpretations can't be verified. So just for example, when 9-11 happened, okay, 9-11 happens. Uh, I remember seeing a video of some Muslims over in Pakistan or Afghanistan, one of those countries. And they were like screaming with joy. They were in like this restaurant. They mm -hmm. were screaming with joy like a soccer goal had mm -hmm, just been mm -hmm. uh, scored. Um, because they would see it as holy men that were engaged in jihad who gained a great victory that day. Whereas a lot of us here in our country would, would say within our grid that some terrorists came over and killed 3,000 and some innocent people. Right. So there's different interpretations, but the bare fact is planes flew into buildings or uh, Pennsylvania farm field 
and killed thousands of people. So the same thing is, you know, when you come to any kind of historical hypothesis, it involves interpretation. And, you know, then you've got, you've got the eyewitness who was there. They're looking at it through their own grid and they're interpreting the event and their memories aren't perfect. And then the historian, are they getting a direct directly from that person? Well, in many cases, not. They're getting it from someone else who reported it, uh, what that person said, and they've got their grid, and then the historian has their own grid, and then we're reading that historian 2,000 years later from our grid, mm -hmm. and so it's an interpretation of an interpretation of an mm -hmm. interpretation of an interpretation of actual facts. And, and, and so the postmodernist kind of view is, <coughs> there's all of history is just an interpretation there's, there's little we can know, and there's many challenges to understanding or knowing the past. So I think the postmodernist movement, which has been very influential within the field of, of, of history, probably about 50% of historians lean toward a postmodernist interpretation, whereas 50% would be realists. And, and they'd say, yeah, we can have, an, we can have interpret, accurate interpretations of the past, and it's more in more recent decades that you have New Testament scholars that are now delving into postmodernist thought. And I don't think Dale is a postmodernist, but I think he's really influenced some, and mm. it makes him hesitant to, to come to more certain conclusions. And when we hold more, when I, someone like myself holds more confident conclusions, say like the resurrection of Jesus or something about the historical Jesus, I still hold it with an open hand because you have to say, you know, I could mis be misinterpreted mm -hmm. yeah. right. and more evidence may come in the future that would change my mind. So here's what I think the evidence points to, and they do this in science as well. Yes. And this is what I hold right now, but I'm open to change that in the future if some evidence comes out that would point in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And what could that evidence possibly be that would come out that would cause us to say, I don't think Jesus rose from the dead, other than finding his body, right? If yeah. we could find it and identify it, that would be another problem. How would you know it was his? But how, I mean, what kind of evidence would we get? Could we get that would say, I don't think he rose from the dead? Well, let's just say um, sometime in the future, uh, some archaeologists are digging around in Jerusalem and they find an ossuary, one mm -hmm. of those bone boxes mm -hmm. that were was used around the time mm -hmm. of Jesus. And it, it says, Jesus, uh, uh, son of Joseph, he was called Messiah. Mm -hmm. And you open up this ossuary and there's the skeletal remains of a crucified victim. They've found that like with Yahohan in yeah, 1968. Sure. Yeah. And then there's some papyri inside. Mm -hmm. And it says, we fooled the world until today. Mm -hmm. And it's signed by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> they say, well... Maybe it's a forgery, mm -hmm. um, you know, but they, they look at it and they date it back to the first century. Mm. And then maybe they do a DNA analysis of the bones. And then they do a DNA analysis on the Shroud of Turin with some of the blood. And they say, mm. whoa, there's a match. Mm. And then what will we do? Mm. I think that that would show that Jesus did not rise from the dead. There's a DNA match and there's the bones of Jesus. Mm. And mm. Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Now, right. Well, something like that, I, I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for something no. like that to happen. Um, but that would disconfirm the resurrection. I sure, think. but then we'd have to try and explain why many of these people gave up their ancient Jewish religion for a lie that got them persecuted 
tortured and some of them killed. How would we explain that? That they maybe they thought it was true and went to their deaths anyway, and only a small group of them had actually foisted this hoax on them, and this small group knew it was a lie, and the people that wrote down the New Testament maybe didn't think it was a lie. I mean, how would you... How would you... That's problematic. Yeah. But we have those kinds of things in history. Right, yeah. Um, we have those kind of things in New Testament studies. Mm-hmm. So, like I was talking to a bunch of guys at lunch today, and, um, I mean, you passed by. You and Jorge mm-hmm. passed mm-hmm. by. You saw it. And, and it's like uh, we're talking about the synoptic problem. Mm. And Mark and Priority, uh, by far, most scholars go with Mark and Priority. Mark was written first. Matthew and Luke used Mark as their primary source and supplemented mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's good evidence for it. Mm-hmm. Um whether you take Matt, if you take Matthew in priority, um, there's some evidence for that. Um, but then you can address some of that. And I think the answers to Matthew in priority um, are, are, are pretty good. And the, the cumulative evidence for Mark in priority is better. But there's still what are called the minor agreements of Matthew and Luke against Mark. It, I mean, I can explain it, but I, I don't want to get too far off track mm-hmm. here. Um, and that is a real, it's a significant challenge to mark and priority. Um, and I think there's some answers to this, like, like, and I don't want to get into that mm-hmm. e- either. Or how about, um, uh, a lot of the early church fathers who said Matthew wrote Matthew said that Matthew wrote in Hebrew or probably meaning the Aramaic dialect. So, um, but the Matthew that we have today, see, uh, is it, it's apparent it wasn't originally written in Aramaic, the one we have is was written in Greek and it's not translation Greek. Even evangelical specialists in the Greek uh, language will say it's not translation Greek, meaning it was originally written in Greek. It was okay. not translated from another language. Right. So that would seem to suggest that the Hebrew Matthew, we don't have it. Mm-hmm. The Matthew that we have is a different gospel of Matthew. And how do you explain these things? And it's like, well, there's pros and cons. And well, how, how do we know that Matthew wrote in Hebrew originally? Maybe he did write in Greek. Is that possible or not? Yeah, you okay. might have done both. All right, um, all right. But you got Papias in the beginning of the second century, uh-huh. and he talks about how Matthew wrote in the Hebrew dialect. Again, mm-hmm. probably referring to Aramaic. And he's our earliest source and probably our best source about the authorship of Matthew and Mark. Um so there are pros and cons of the different arguments mm-hmm. and you got these tensions and sometimes, you know, you just got to look at, well, who explains the tensions better mm-hmm. and which one seems like the most plausible explanation. Again, they do this in science as mm-hmm. well, as mm-hmm. you know, uh, wave or particle, but there's yeah. some things that seem to be both. And how right. do you explain that? Um, so scientists have this problem as well. Historians have it even in non-religious matters. We have it in all kinds of gospel studies as well. I don't know if you remember this, Mike, but years ago, this was 2009, when you came to SES, I know you remember the debate, but you came to SES to debate Bart Ehrman, and Mm -hmm. uh, we all went to dinner beforehand, Mm -hmm. and it was me and you and Alex McFarland, who was the president of the seminary at the time, and Tom Howe and Richard Howe and Bart Ehrman. Yeah. We all went to dinner at Macaroni Grill there. It was a good time. (laughs) We had a good time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we were talking. I remember at one point, we got talking to Bart, and Bart said, well, who isn't a postmodernist? And everybody at the table except him raised their hand. We go, well, we're not postmodernists. And I said to him, Bart, it's, you know, postmodernism self-defeating to say there's no truth is a truth claim. He said, it's not that simple. I said, no, it is. It's just logic, you know, and there may be different degrees of it. 
But uh, to be a postmodernist, to say that there is no overarching truth is a, is a truth claim itself. And to try and, and I know there are probably varieties of this when you're looking at history, you know, how, how well can you know history? I get that. Yeah, but, there still is a truth. Yeah. We may not know it. Right, yeah. But there is uh, the correspondence yeah. of theory of truth. Correspondence theory of truth is true. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> That's right. I, I embrace correspondence theory of truth. Uh -huh. It's just that a lot of times in history, we can't know right. the truth right, or, right. or all of it. And of course, there's a philosophy of history at play here, because I saw in the exchange you had with, with uh, Dale Allison, that Dale was bringing up as an historian, I can't say whether Jesus rose from the dead. And Bart Ehrman will say the same yeah. thing, that you can't say that Jesus rose from the dead because somehow suggesting a supernatural event took place is outside of the realm of history. Well, that's a philosophical presupposition. Why is it outside of the realm of history? Yeah, well, I, as you know, I have debated Bart on this, and mm -hmm. I, I responded to Dale on this, that um, I disagree with them mm -hmm. strongly. And mm -hmm. I think their reasons for it are, are quite weak. Mm -hmm. um, the illustration I gave in my seven-hour debate earlier this year with, with Bart, uh, Ehrman. With Bart yeah. it yeah. was, um, you know, let, let, let's suppose that astronomers identify a comet and they see that it's um, on track. Uh, to collide with the moon on a certain day and time. And uh, so they're watching through the, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope and another number of planetariums. And at the appointed time, the comet slams into the moon. And as the lunar dust settles, there's a message written on the moon's surface in Hebrew and in Greek that says, Jesus is Lord. <laughs> now, what a scientist, an astronomer would say is this. Wow, that's quite remarkable. Now, um, it doesn't seem, this would seem to suggest that there's intelligence behind it, but as an, a scientist, I don't have the tools to be able to detect who or what that, sci that uh, cause of this may have been. Mm -hmm. um, I can't say anything about it because uh, I don't have the tools. So what I can say is the comet hit the moon and caused this a message to appear on here, and I'm going to have to leave the cause of the event um, undetermined, mm. right? I know that the comet did it, but there's more to it than that, and the ultimate cause behind it, I'm just going to have to leave undetermined. Now, here's what the scientist would not say. Wow, that's an extraordinary event, and I don't have any natural explanations for this. Um, it would seem to require an intelligent cause behind it, but I don't have the tools to be able to determine anything about that cause. And so it, it would seem to require a miracle, but I don't have the tools to do it. And so I, um, I can't say, I can't affirm that the event itself occurred. Mm. I can't even say that the comet slammed on the moon's surface. Of course, that would be insane. That's We'd right. never say. Yeah. But that's exactly what Ehrman is suggesting. Mm. He's saying, look, we could have all this evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. It could be the very best hypothesis to explain the evidence. But as a historian, I don't have the tools to be able to, de to determine it was God because it would require a miracle to, for Jesus to rise from the dead. And so, therefore, I can't affirm the event itself. Right? Mm. Oh, that's, okay. That's oh, what these guys saying. are saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't affirm the event itself. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, as a historian, I would say, if we examine the data, we formulate hypotheses, we subject those hypotheses to strictly controlled historical data. This is something that neither mm -hmm. Dale nor Bart does. New Testament scholars don't do this. Historians do it, though. 
and say, if you subject these hypo competing hypotheses to strictly controlled historical method, the hypothesis that best explains the facts, especially if it does it by a significant margin, should be regarded as what probably occurred. Of course, we hold it with an open hand mm -hmm. and call it provisional. It could be otherwise. But I'm going to hold it as this is what probably occurred until something comes up and changes my mind. And so I can say, as a historian, and I think the resurrection hypothesis passes that test, I can say, as a historian, Jesus rose from the dead, and I leave the cause of the event undetermined. Mm. Right? Mm. Okay. Um, now, on my off hours outside of historian, I can say, yeah, but God seems to be the best cause to me, mm. rationally mm -hmm. speaking. Mm -hmm. I don't have the, the tools, but look. I, th I think most people will acknowledge if Jesus rose, it's probably God. That well, that did would it. still presuppose that God can't intervene in the world and an historian can't detect it or one or the other, right? Because we're still saying as historians, we can't ever say that the cause of a particular event was God. That's, that's a rule that we put on the study of history, apparently. My question is why? Well, again, they would say we don't have the tools. Like, for example, take the statement... Jesus' death atones for sin, mm -hmm. all right? The historian can certainly look at the historical element of that statement. Jesus died and say, okay, we look at the data, not only the New Testament data, but I look at the non-Christian sources of that time, like Tacitus, Lucian, mm -hmm. Josephus, mm -hmm. Marbar, Sorabi, things like that. And I can say, yep, the evidence is there. Jesus died by, a, by crucifixion. But as a historian, I don't have any tools to be able to confirm that his death atones for sin. Doesn't mean I can't believe it, mm -hmm. but I can't show that he did historically. I can show that his disciples believed that his death atones for sin. Mm -hmm. I can show perhaps that Jesus believed that his uh, forthcoming death would atone for sin, but I can't, as a historian, uh, corroborate that his death indeed atones for sin. Unless you're also a theologian. Yeah, <laughs> what, what tools would even a theologian right. have to be able to corroborate that? Right. Um, well, you can say it's rational to believe yeah, it, yeah, yeah. but I don't have any tools to be able to corroborate that. When you say tools, define what you mean by that. Yeah, well, well how could even a theologian prove that Jesus' death atones for sin? Mm. How, how could they do that? Yeah, I guess it would have to be based on a couple things. One, the idea that sin is a real thing, and we know we have a moral standard written on our hearts, and we all fall short of that. Secondly, we know that good deeds can't overpower bad deeds, that if you've committed a bad deed, that's still an injustice, even though you have committed good deeds, right? So, and then thirdly, it would seem to me, uh, we would have to go on the eyewitness testimony of the people that were there and heard Jesus say this, and go on the eyewitness testimony that he indeed was sinless and then did pay this penalty on our behalf. And then it's vindicated by the fact he has risen from the dead. Now, what tools am I using there? I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm using philosophy, morality, um, historical evidence, and eyewitness accounts to come to the conclusion that he did atone for sin. Would that be, an, would that be um, wrong to do that? No, no, I, I don't think so. And it would build, I, I think, a really good case to say mm -hmm. that the statement that Jesus' death atones for sins is a very reasonable, mm -hmm. rational belief to, ha mm -hmm. to hold. Mm -hmm. But you could, could still say, well, how do we know he was telling the truth? Mm -hmm. um, 
how can I affirm? What tools, possible tools could I have to affirm that Jesus is currently at the right hand of God? Mm -hmm. I just don't know that we can do that. Um, it might be the only way you could would be to say that if we take your historical approach, which you do in the book, The Resurrection of Jesus. And combine it with other stuff. Yeah, combine yeah. that with the idea, okay, if Jesus really did predict and accomplish his own resurrection from the dead, then he's God. And whatever God, by definition, teaches is true. If we have good historical evidence, he said these things, and we have good reason to believe he was God because of his resurrection, then we could and say... we'd have to have a good reason to say that everything he teaches is true. If he's God, we, we would say that, by definition, God is infallible and only teaches the truth. Okay, so that yeah. would have to be argued. Right. I mean, I believe that, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah. but that would have to be argued. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, if we have a, a like, level... For example, the Muslims believe that God is a deceiver, mm -hmm. that sometimes he actually intentionally mm -hmm. deceives people. Mm -hmm. We'd have to show that the Christian God is, is not only that way in Scripture, but you'd have to show yeah, that that's the, the way standard he, he of really is. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't think even many natural theologians would suggest that whoever God is, that he's a deceiver. By definition, deception would be the absence of truth, and only, I mean, without truth, there's no such, no such thing as a lie. It's like evil and good, right? Good can exist without evil, but evil can't exist without good. So ultimate reality can't be evil. Ultimate reality can't be falsehoods. Ultimate reality can't be deception. It's got to be truth, goodness, and righteousness. Mm. So even just from kind of a, a natural uh, theology perspective, we'd have to say that Whoever God is, what we mean by him, the greatest good, it's just that. He's the greatest good. There's no deceit found in him. So let's take then, uh, from what you're saying, and say you got a historian, you got a natural theologian, mm -hmm. philosophy, and so forth. You put it all together, and you can make a cumulative case to say that Jesus' death atones for mm -hmm. sin. Okay? So you could do the same thing with resurrection. Mm. But I, I guess my contention here is, back to the original question you had, why would Ehrman and, and Dale say mm. that historians can't? Right. And I'd say because historians acting as historians don't have the tools to prove that God raised Jesus. Is that, Mike, is that, do you think that's a function of the, I don't know how to say this right. It used to be that theology was thought to be the queen of all sciences, right? Because theology took into account everything across the board from the physical sciences like physics and biology to history to mathematics to logic i mean everything is under the rubric of god's truth when you're a systematic theologian you're supposed to take all of this and see how it all fits together to find unity and diversity but in today's world we don't have systematic theologians we don't think theology is the queen of all sciences if you're an historian you're supposed to stay in that lane Right? If you're a philosopher, you stay in that lane. If you're a biologist, you stay in that lane. Well, you can't get a complete picture of reality by staying in those lanes. That's true. So, yeah. and, and they, of course, philosophy undergirds all of it as well. You can't, you really can't be a historian if you're not a philosopher. Yeah. You, you are going to make philosophical assumptions. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think philosophers of history, you know, it's very interesting to read their stuff. I mean, it's a very interesting discipline. Mm. People devote their lives just to the philosophy of history. Can the past be known? How do we know it? To what extent can it be known? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it struck me in your conversation with Dale that he kept saying, as an historian, I can't say, I can't say. And I was thinking to myself, how about as a human being? <laughs> can you say, right? Yeah. Because uh, he seems to have walled off uh, his, the rest of his, of his um, 
knowledge from just this historical question, did Jesus rise from the dead? And maybe we should have started this conversation by saying that worldview matters. Mm. We always say that um, you're only, you only have to establish two major facts to show that what C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity is true, and that is, number one, God exists, and number two, Jesus rose from the dead. So if we're trying to go to the second of those questions, did Jesus rise from the dead, but we haven't established that this is a theistic world where God could intervene if he wanted to, then you might be a little bit more hesitant to say, well, Jesus rose from the dead, because without that idea that God does exist and could intervene, why would you then say he did intervene? It might be more rational to say there's some other explanation. Yeah, yeah, and no, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know exactly why it's become so much, uh, the disciplines are siloed and mm-hmm. there's no crossover. I, mm-hmm. I think that it's okay to cross over. Could be th- but because the disciplines have become so specialized, mm. you know, over the last century or so. You, you can really, like, I thought when I was going to college, a person who had a PhD or a THD, mm. PhD in theology, they knew everything about the Bible. Oh, yeah. you know, that's what I thought uh-huh. when I was uh-huh. in undergrad school. Uh-huh. And then, you know, okay, I got a PhD. I've specialized in stuff about the resurrection of Jesus and things about historical Jesus. And it's like, man, you know, I could spend the rest of my life just focusing on resurrection of Jesus and not go outside of that, mm. that, that much and, and really still not be able to cover everything. Mm. And some people focus on Christology and some people, you know, you got these things that's become so specialized. Um, but it, I think it is legitimate, like you're saying, if you can cross discipline. So scientists do it to an extent. So philosophy of science. And so from what I understand from some scientists, we've never seen a black hole. Probably we'll never see a black hole or some some subatomic particles like quark strings, gluons, things like that. But the reason that these theoretical entities are posited is because we see certain effects. Exactly. And so you apposite hypothetical theoretical causes that would result in these effects, theoretical entities that would produce these kind of effects. And so therefore, even though we've never seen a black hole, it is a very good explanation, a profitable explanation of how we get certain things. I think in the same sense, a historian could say, posit God as a theoretical entity as the cause for the resurrection of Jesus. And I think that they would be justified in mm-hmm. doing so. Mm-hmm. I just, as a historian, I pull short of that when I'm presenting the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus so I can be a, as kind of minimalist and and, mm-hmm. and not be accused of going further than the evidence can bear. Mm-hmm. So I, I just choose to stay and say, well, as a historian, I think we can show that the resurrection hypothesis is by far the best historical explanation that Jesus probably rose and will leave the cause of the resurrection undetermined. By the way, what you just said there is a a great point that uh, I want to reiterate, and that is when people say, how do you know God exists? I think what you ought to say is I know God by his effects, right? There's a creation, that's the effect. I'm reasoning back to a cause of creator. There's design, the fine-tuning, the design in biology, that's the effect. I'm reasoning back to a cause of designer. We have a moral law written on our heart, that's the effect. We're reasoning back to a moral law giver. We have this mathematical grid upon which the universe appears to operate and how we can ascertain truths about the real world through the laws of logic in our minds, that's the effect. I'm reasoning back to a cause, an ultimate mind. We have this data that Mike and others have brought forth to us about the resurrection we see that data that's the effect we're reasoning back to a cause that god rose jesus from the dead so we're always reasoning from effect to cause 
And that's what scientists do. And sometimes we just use simple examples like, how do you know George Washington existed? Well, you've never seen him? Oh, I've seen paintings. Of, paintings an effect of George Washington, right? It's not George Washington himself. You've seen things around that are best explained by a cause known as George Washington. There are effects all around us. And the same thing is true of Jesus. Whether or not Jesus has appeared to you or whether or not Jesus has, has given you the, uh, the witness of the Holy Spirit, say, there's still effects from Jesus that cause us to realize that it seems the best explanation for uh, the historical data is that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. So we're reasoning from effect back to cause. And I don't think we can, as human beings, maybe as strict professionals, we can wall ourselves off in these little silos and say, I'm, I'm staying in my lane here. But as a human being, you're supposed to have a broader view than that. And, and draw some conclusions, it seems. It seems that's what God wants us to do, right? Yeah. To, to, to not just say, well, I don't know, or, you know. I, in, it, in some cases, I mean, I think it's fine to say, I don't know, when we really mm -hmm. don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There, there are certain things that I would say when it comes to the New Testament. I just say, well, I, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what to do mm -hmm. with that. And and it's, it's fine with that. But I... I Look, Dale's a great scholar. Uh, I mean, my scholarship will ever be just a fraction of what his is. He is he is mm. that good. Mm. He is really and he has a good a new book that's like a year old on the issue, right? Yeah, the resurrection. Yeah, yeah, probably a year and a half old right. now. Um, yeah, and, and he's really good. He does great exegesis. Mm -hmm. He's an honest, open-minded scholar. Um, but yeah, ever since I, I read his stuff back in two thousand five on the resurrection, it just seemed to me that. He just didn't want to draw firm conclusions. And I think some of it is, is he wants to see more of a consensus among others because we all mm. have our worldviews and it's like, mm. you got to break through. Why aren't you able to convince non-believers? Well, mm. I mean, non-believers are convinced. Know, I've known non-believers who have been convinced by the right, evidence. Right. Well, why, why, can't we, why can't we convince more historians of Jesus on that? Well, because worldview is involved mm -hmm. in, in that. And... I mean, you've got even professional philosophers of history who will say in non-religious matters that pluralism is a basic characteristic of history as a discipline. Mm. And that's the way it is with non-religious issues, all the more so in historical questions when worldview is at play, such as the historical Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. So I don't think that we can expect that we're ever going to find a, a big consensus, a, a robust consensus, heterogeneous consensus on whether Jesus rose from the dead. Well, there's too many life implications for mm -hmm. that, right? Uh, we do find consensus that Alexander the Great did what he did, despite the fact that our earliest history of him is 400 years after he actually walked the earth. Or best history, yeah. Yeah, best history. Uh, so it seems to me when you're talking about issues, which were pretty dramatic pretty dramatic events in history, unparalleled events, what Alexander the Great did, where he conquered and how he conquered it at a very young age. Nobody really questions that. But if you're going to say Jesus rose from the dead, that has implications on how we live and where we might be going in eternity. So that's a much higher bar for people. They, they don't even want to try and jump it. Yeah, right? that's true. They just want to say, oh. And would anyone, if we had the kind of of documents, Mike, that we have for Jesus of Nazareth, if we had those same number of documents and distance from the events themselves in terms of years for Alexander the Great, 
Would anyone question anything about Alexander the Great? No. <laughs> I mean, no. You know, a few years ago, uh, I heard someone say that the evidence we have for Jesus' resurrection is, is as good, if not better, than what we have for Caesar's cross in the Rubicon. Mm -hmm. And I thought, no, eh, that's really pushing it. And so I looked into it myself and I looked, okay, within a relatively recent period of time, what, what's the evidence we have for Caesar's cross and Rubicon? And we've got nine sources written within, if I remember right, within 200 years okay. of the Rubicon crossing. And of those, um, I think there are only four that were eyewitnesses. Even Caesar himself doesn't mention his crossing the Rubicon in his commentary on the Civil War. Um, what he does do indirectly is he speaks about being in um, Ariminum, and then he speaks about being in Ravenna. Well, you got to cross the Rubicon to get, to get there, there. All right. but he doesn't mention the Rubicon uh -huh. crossing. So you've got indirect references, mm -hmm. things like that. But you don't have an eyewitness saying that, you know, Caesar himself isn't saying he, he was there. So you have like a couple of eyewitnesses. They didn't see him cross the Rubicon, but they say he crossed the Rubicon. Um, and it, some of them are within, like Cicero wrote a letter that we have, and that was probably written within just a, a couple of weeks of Caesar's crossing the Rubicon. But he mentions it indirectly. Mm -hmm. He doesn't even mention the Rubicon crossing. He said when he came to Ravenna. All right. All right. So you got this kind of stuff, and and these authors are biased. Some of them have all they contradict one another mm -hmm. on certain things. They they mention supernatural entities, really? like Lucan okay. and Plutarch. Mm -hmm. You've got them doing that. So if if you're going to mention miracles and things like that to discredit the Gospels, you're going to discredit a whole lot of these Greco-Roman and Jewish sources that mention things because they mention miracles mm -hmm. and portents and apparitions and, and things like this as well. So they're going to suffer from a lot of the same kind of stuff. And my conclusion is that the quality of the sources we have for Jesus, resurrection, are every bit as good mm, as mm. what we have for mm. Caesar's crossing the Rubicon. Mm. Um, in some sense, Caesar's crossing the Rubicon uh, the evidence might be a little better than we have for the resurrection. And in some, but I'd say the documentary evidence of just taking that is better for the resurrection. than we have Caesar's cross and Rubicon. Let me ask you about that, Mike. And, and maybe this will be the last major topic we talk about here. But I remember Bart Ehrman saying this. Um, do you remember what George Bush said in the 2005 State of the Union address? And of course, all of us are going to go, well, of course not. Why would we? And he, he makes that like it's a parallel to uh, the disciples remembering what Jesus said when he was on the earth. How could they write it down? Now, it seems to me there's a number of problems with this kind of reasoning from Ehrman, but I want to hear your take on it. What would you say back to him if he were to say that's the, kind of the, the, that's the same kind of parallel that we ought to draw for what happened 2,000 years ago with the New Testament writers? Yeah, well, that's a it's a bad parallel. Mm -hmm. It's 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 atrocious. Yeah. Um, for example, I, I don't even recall if I if I listened to Bush's State of the Union. I, I probably did. Sure. Yeah. But I only heard it once. Right. Just one time. Uh huh. And it was gone. The disciples of Jesus traveled with him anywhere from one and a half to three years. Mm. 
And it's not like Jesus had to come up with a new sermon with every village he went right. in. He may have had 20 sermons, uh -huh. 20 lectures. And he told the same thing over and over and over, and they probably heard the same sermons a hundred times. If you travel with me, you'll hear the same presentation yeah. over and over again. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, and well, I, I was at a conference where Lee Strobel was speaking. I was sitting next to Mark Middleberg, and as Lee's speaking, Mark would whisper, lean over, whisper in my ear, and and he'd whisper a sentence, and then within... Five seconds, Strobel would say it verbatim. That's right. Yep. Right? Uh -huh. And he kept doing this. And, I've, and of course, Mark had heard it so much. It's like, so exactly. It's like going to a movie with someone who's seen it before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and leave me alone. That, uh, Gary and Eileen Habermas, every year when they visit us for Labor Day, we watch Tombstone. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's like, it's just a tradition we have. Uh -huh. And we can, we know so many of the lines from that movie. Uh -huh. I mean, it is a wonderful I mean, the line is that the one with Val Kilmer? Yes. That one? Okay. I'm your right. Huckleberry. Yeah. All right. All right. And uh, I mean, there are just some awesome lines in that uh -huh. movie, but um, yeah, you're, you're right. Okay. And the fact is they're hearing it over and over and over. And Jesus taught in parables, which made it easy to remember those things. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that they're going to remember Jesus verbatim? No. Um, but they're certainly going to remember the gist because not only did they hear Jesus say these things countless times, but remember he sent them out. And you've, um, we all have heard it said, the best way to learn something is to teach it. So not only did they learn it, but then they go out and teach it. They come back, Jesus debriefs with them. Maybe says, well, you know, you can vary this detail a little. Say it this way when you're talking to Gentiles. Say it this way when you're talking to Jews. And, and so and then they go out. And until the Gospels are written, they're preaching the same things hundreds and hundreds of times over. So it's not like they just heard the State of the Union one time, and they're trying to recall it 35 to 40 years later, or whatever, 20 mm -hmm. years later. It is a matter of they've heard it hundreds of times, they've taught it hundreds of times, and they've done it in all the period, all the way up to the time of writing. And Jesus, as a good rabbi teacher, understood rhetoric, and he put it in ways that would have been easy to understand and used hyperbolic language and shock language like, Unless you hate your father, mother, brother, mm -hmm. sister, wife, and children, you cannot be my disciple. And Matthew kind of changes that language to take the shock value around and says, unless you love me more than father, mother, brother, sister, wife, and children, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, these are, or if, you're, if your eye causes you to stumble, you know, like if you have a problem with the lust, rip it out and throw it from you. Well, did he really mean for that to happen? No, you know, you've got Seneca who uh, was a contemporary of Paul, who was considered the brightest Roman mind, and he says, if your heart is wicked, rip it out. Mm. Uh, and that was a way for them to say, you, you, you act as though you have no heart. You act as though you are blind. And if you're blind, you cannot look that, give that second look at a woman, right? Like Paul says it differently. Consider the members of your earthly body as being dead to immorality, passion, evil desire, and greed, things like that. So it was rhetoric, but by Jesus' hand, rip out your eye, cut off your hand. I mean, we don't forget those kinds no. of things. And when he says it over and over and over, yeah, it's just a Ehrman's thing about the, the Bush State of the Union that you hear one time. It's a terrible analogy. It is. It's also terrible because of this, Mike. I agree with you. They've said it so many, they've heard it so many times, they've taught it themselves. But if, if a State of the Union was an impact event, 
like something dramatic happened. I can remember a Bush State of the, it wasn't a State of the Union, it was a Bush speech. I think it was nine days after 9-11 when he, he gave the address to Congress. Do you remember when he held up that badge of that police officer or fireman that died in the towers? He was holding it up and he was actually crying on camera. I remember that. I also remember the first game at Yankee Stadium after 9-11 because against the Braves. No, that was that was the Met game. This oh, was, yeah, yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yep. where Pizzazzo, I remember that too. Where Mike Piazza hit that two-run home run in the eighth inning to beat the Braves. Even the Braves were going. Yeah, that was good. Yep. <laughs> you yeah. know, because they needed that win. New York, as a nation, we needed that win. But it was the first game at Yankee Stadium after 9/11. President Bush was going to throw out the first pitch. And he had a Yankee jacket on, and underneath he had a bulletproof vest. Hmm. And while they put everybody through metal detectors going in, we didn't know if we were going to get hit again, you know, just a week or so after 9-11. It was, there was still so much uncertainty. It, are there going to be snipers in, in the stadium? Is there going to be a bomb that's going to be detonated in the stadium? And so Bush went into the Yankee dugout, and he asked Derek Jeter, he said, Derek, I need a place to warm up. I want to make sure I throw this well. So Jeter took him under the stadium and said, you start warming up because if you bounce it up there, they're going to boo you. And so the president of the United States is under Yankee Stadium in a bullpen throwing pitches off a mound. And I'll never forget this. He came out. The crowd just erupted. He walked right up to the mound, waved with the ball, and then threw a strike and then walked off the mound. And I mean, even Rosie O'Donnell, who at the time, you know, was so far left and a Bush hater prior to 9-11, she said, that's my president. Wow. Right. Wow. I mean, that was a period of unity. Mm -hmm. It was an impact event. If you saw that, you'll never forget that. And I think some of the things Jesus said were impact events. Certainly the resurrection was an impact event. Mm -hmm. I don't think they could have gotten that wrong, right? Yeah. If they had seen him physically risen from the dead and had touched him and ate with him, they wouldn't have forgotten that. That's an impact event. That's not the Bush 2005 State of the Union, you know, put me to sleep address. This is something you will never forget the rest of your life. In fact, people who are watching right now who are old enough, where were you when the second plane hit the tower? You remember something about that day. You might not remember what you had for breakfast this morning, but you'll remember an event. I'll bet they remember the weather. Oh, yeah. Oh, on 9-11? Mm -hmm. Crystal clear. Yep. But I'll bet you don't remember what the weather was like a couple of months ago on 9-11 this no, year. No, you don't. You don't. <laughs> I was asked people, you know, 9-11 right now is like a little over 21 years ago. But if I would ask you where you were 21 days ago, you'd go, I don't know. Let me look at my iPhone, right? But there's no impact event 21 days ago. Impact event 21 years ago, everyone remembers. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think it just makes sense that the people who witnessed this would have no trouble remembering it for two reasons. Number one, the reason you mentioned, they heard it several times, not just once, and then they taught it. And then secondly, so much had to do with an impact event, especially when Jesus rose from the dead. Yes. They, there's no way... Now, if you want to add a theological aspect to us, then we could bring in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we don't even need to get there right. to show they would have memorized the basic storyline, right? So last thing on this then, Mike. 
Um, in talking to our mutual friend, Gary Habermas, I said, Gary, how many of the scholars that you're, you're investigating in your magnum opus, which is now nearly 5,500 pages, suggest that the New Testament writers invented the resurrection? And he basically says, no, I don't think very many of them say they invented it. What they might say is maybe they were mistaken. Mm-hmm. Okay. How might they have been mistaken, Mike? Is it possible that they were mistaken? Is it possible that these stories were embellished over many years and what they considered at one point maybe was a spiritual resurrection somehow later became a physical resurrection? I mean, what's possible here based on the evidence? What's what's reasonable to believe? Yeah, reasonable. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, anything's possible, yeah, sure. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but reasonable. And I think Dale and Bart would even, look, Bart has himself written and said publicly that Paul believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The disciples believed in the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't a spiritual, immaterial resurrection. It was a physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Now, that's what they believed. So, Ehrman would say, hallucinations. Still? Yeah, I think he goes toward hallucinations. Um, And what's what's the... What's the foil to that? I mean, he... Other than the empty tomb would be one, I guess, right? Yeah, when you say, what do you mean the foil? Well, how to answer that? that, Yeah, why is that not a good possibility? Well, I mean, there's a number of possibilities. It's like, okay, number one, I would say that when you understand hallucinations and all the research that's been done by -hmm. by experts in the mental health profession over the years, only approximately 7% of the group most likely to experience a hallucination, meaning... uh, uh, people grieving the loss of a loved mm. one, only 7% of them on average experience a visual hallucination. And the, the you know, even though all the reports are that he appeared mm. to them, that's visual. Mm. And it's not just 7%. I mean, it's 7% of, let's say, uh, 12. And of course, you don't have Judas, but you had Matthias and you had mm-hmm. others that became part of the 12. Mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> 7% of 12 would be one. Mm-hmm maybe you're getting toward two. Um, but all the reports are all of the disciples experienced an appearance of the risen Jesus. So number one, it's not 7%, it's 100%, which goes against what, mm-hmm. what the scientific data bears out. Number two, you've got group appearances. Mm-hmm. Now, Ehrman contends that you can have group appearances, but the examples he gives are really poor. Um, like the Marian apparitions. Mm. Those are very, very different than mm-hmm. what we have of the appearances of the risen Jesus. Appearances of, of the uh, Marian apparitions are usually more visionary in nature. Uh, if you look at the ones that happened in like Egypt, they're more like a ghost-like, a spirit that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that one would see, and it's, it's not crystal clear. Mm. And usually the Marian apparition, she doesn't say anything. Mm. I mean, the, the accounts of Jesus... He cooks breakfast for them. Mm-hmm. He eats. He allows them to touch him. Now, some apparitions, as Dale Allison, and I have a board member who's a physician who's, man, he's written a terrific book. I've read the manuscript, and and that's coming out at some mm-hmm. time in the future, within the next couple of years. He's done a lot of research, and sometimes there are apparitions that can be touched, mm-hmm. but they are in the minority. But when you put everything together, apparitions that can be touched, an empty tomb, mm. you know, uh, that's not a hallucination. Right, yeah. Um, and then you have these group hallucinations, which mental health professionals would say group hallucinations, generally speaking, are impossible because 
They are events that occur in the mind of an individual. They have no external reality. So a group can no more experience a hallucination than a group could fall asleep at the same time and simultaneously experience the same dream. Right, right. Right? Mm -hmm. So you got group hallucinations, and you have at least three of them in the very earliest uh, report of the resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 3 mm -hmm. through uh, 7. And then you got Paul. Paul isn't grieving the... Uh, the, the no, uh, he's trying to kill Christians. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So Jesus is the last person in the universe uh, that Paul would have wanted to see or expected to see. So uh, hallucination hypothesis just does not work. It mm. is a really poor hypothesis. But is Ehrman trying to say that so many of these stories were embellished over the years? That the form in which we have them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... Yeah, he would say they're embellished. Okay, but... You look at our work, the work of our mutual friend, uh, Craig Blomberg, when he looks at the eyewitness evidence of just the Gospel of John, mm -hmm. and then you look at undesigned coincidences between uh, some of these uh, texts, and you look at uh, eyewitness details in Luke, and only an eyewitness or someone who knew an eyewitness like Luke did could have these. So how does he explain all these? Or well, the, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not yeah. asking you to be a Bart Ehrman apologist. I'm saying he's the most prominent skeptic out there yeah. that brings these things up. And for me, they don't, they don't seem to, they're not persuasive at all, but maybe it's just me. I mean, am I missing something here? Uh, I don't know how he, he would address that. He'd probably just take, well, he doesn't like Bauckham. Uh, what, what Balkum says about oh, yeah. Jesus and the eyewitnesses. Yeah, but that's, that's another. Balkum in addition to Craig Blomberg. The yeah. Jesus and the eyewitnesses with Balkum. Seems the the whole name situation where yeah, he gets all the names uh, the right. Automastics. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Bauckham gives some some pretty decent arguments. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, I'm convinced by by Bauckham. All stuff, the all the embarrassing details that they wouldn't have invented. Yeah, but that doesn't mean some things aren't thrown in there. So, for example, right. as you know, I was criticized for my interpretation of the Ray Saints mm -hmm. in Matthew's Gospel. Um, but let, let's get away from the Gospels and let's look at some Greco-Roman literature, okay, mm. for a second. So uh, John Ramsey wrote a catalog, I think it was 2003, around that time, of a catalog of comets in the Greco-Roman literature. And he goes back, I forgot how many centuries B.C. to a couple centuries A.D. And he was able to show in some cases that our, we, can, we can show through NASA, um, we can know when a comet so we, we can know when a comet actually appeared. Well, in some of these accounts, there was also um, an eclipse of the sun that the, the person, the ancient writer report. So there was a comet and there was an eclipse of the sun. And uh, these are like considered portents there. The ancients would look at this like an eclipse of the sun, like something ominous mm -hmm. was going to mm -hmm. occur. Mm -hmm. um, and so they were kind of superstitious in that way. So there were occasions when there were, they reported a comet and an eclipse of the sun occurred. Well, through NASA, we can know that there was a comet that appeared at that time, but there's also, NASA has a website where you can go and you can select a year and click on a geographical region anywhere on earth, and it will tell you whether there was an eclipse of the sun that was visible in that region during that year. Wow. And so we can know in some of these cases that there was a comet but there was not an eclipse of the sun, mm -hmm. which strongly suggests that that author added the eclipse of the sun in order to um, kind of like give a greater special effect to what was going All on right, the show. Right. This is a significant event. All right, All right, yeah. So I consider it possible 
In fact, I, in, in the case of Matthew's race saints, I considered it probable that Matthew did some of this stuff, mm -hmm. uh, that these are portents that some of them may have actually occurred, and Matthew added a few more in order to do the same thing, just like some Greco-Roman authors, and probably Josephus did the same thing when it came to the temple being destroyed. He mm. talks about a cow giving birth to a lamb, mm. and then um, you've got a number of other things, like the, the gates to the temple of Jerusalem, which took more than 20 men to open, open by themselves. Well, Cassius Dio reports that at, at one point, I think when Caesar went into Egypt, that the gates to the temple of Jupiter, which took many men to open, opened by themselves. A lot of these things report comets and eclipses of the sun, mm -hmm. fighting in the heavens. Josephus reports fighting in the heavens <laughs> just before the, the temple was destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, pale phantoms walking around at sunset, wo voices heard in the woods, black intestines seen outside of cattle, streams stop moving, mm. things like this, all just to kind of intensify the situation. So um, is it possible that the Gospels throw some of this in? If this was a literary device that the Greco-Roman and Jewish authors like Josephus did, could the Gospel authors have done it? Would it be like us saying that 9-11 was an earth-shaking event? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, or saying, man, he was so hungry, but his eyes were bigger than his stomach. Mm -hmm. I mean, did, did, are we really to think that or hell will freeze over when that happens? Right. Um, so, I, you know... It, it's hard in some cases to tell, but it doesn't, even if there is some of this in the Gospels, it doesn't change the essential fact. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Jesus mm -hmm. died. He was the son of God who, who mm -hmm. died. Mm -hmm. and, and, then and then rose. The, and then rose from the dead. And the objections to it seem uh, not to be at least persuasive in my view. They, uh, there's always a, another angle on a piece of evidence that is brought forth by a skeptic that I don't think they've considered. Um, so, and, and so much of it, I think, has to do with the eyewitness testimony that we do and we can verify in the text and the fact that there were embarrassing details and the fact that there, uh, there's this cross-checking through these undesigned coincidences. And um, I don't know, there, it's, it, it seems to be a, a text that we can rely on that wasn't embellished over several decades uh, to get to a point where we say we have a risen Savior when, in fact, he didn't rise from the dead. It just, yeah. just seems like a, uh, a big stretch to try and say that. Well, Mike, uh, tell our listeners about your website and where they can find more about you. Well, I'm at risenjesus.com. Right. Um, you can also go to um, our YouTube channel. I think we've got a little over 500 videos there. Um, and of course, I teach at Houston Christian University, uh -huh. which I think we got the top did, apologetics program. Wait a minute, the did they change from Houston Baptist? They did. When did they change? I didn't Probably hear that. Probably a month and a half ago. Oh, okay. Well, it's brand new. Houston yeah. Christian. I wish I'd put something out saying, you know, my time at Houston Baptist University has come to an end. And <laughs> I've really enjoyed it there, but uh, I'm moving on to better fields right now. At, because we've changed our name That's to Houston right. Christian. You know, and the reason they changed it was they were loosely affiliated Baptists before. But we have people from all kinds mm -hmm. of Protestant denominations. We even have some Catholic professors. Um, we different things like we have some Calvinists, Arminians, we have Molinists, we have young earth creationists, old earth creationists. We even have some theistic evolutionists mm -hmm. who teach there. Mm -hmm. um, we have people who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, people who don't believe in inerrancy but we all believe in like a C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity, mm -hmm. where you have God created, um, the virgin birth, 
deity of Jesus, atoning death, bodily resurrection of Jesus, the divine inspiration of Scripture. Jesus is coming again, salvation by faith. We all agree on those things. And it's really cool, even though there's disagreement on some of the peripheral things, we all get along quite well. And it's it's really a, even Craig Evans was saying this to me a couple of weeks ago, there's really a, a specialness there mm-hmm. among the faculty mm-hmm. that you just don't see in a lot of other universities. Um, we all just really like each other and um, pretty cool people there. That's good. So Houston you know. Christian University, you can check that out. Dr. Michael Cohn, I think Bill Craig's there too. He teaches there. He does. Uh, Nancy Piercy. Okay. Um, Mary Jared Jo Charles, Mary Jo Sharp. We got yeah. so mm-hmm. many good faculty and people can, they can do it entirely on campus. Mm-hmm. They can do it entirely online. They can do a hybrid. I, I mean, yeah, I, that's my commercial. Well, good. And another commercial, Mike and I are going to be working shortly here on a course, an online course on the resurrection, a brand new one. So keep an eye out for that. Also want to mention we're coming up to the end of the year here in 2022. We have a generous group of donors that have put together a $100,000 matching program. So any money you give to Cross-Examined here toward the end of the year will be doubled up to $100,000. So thank you for that. As you know, we're completely donor supported and 100% of your donations go to ministry zero percent to buildings we're completely virtual thanks dr michael kona thank you for being here on the i don't have enough faith to be an ape easy for me to say i don't have enough faith to be an atheist bonus podcast lord willing see you next week